Well, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good start to worship. What do you think? Wow, that was, uh, that was beautiful. Glad you're here, Daniel. <laughs> just, just getting to know this guy is just a kick, you know. Just, uh, it's just fun. Anyway, it is, it's really good to be here. You know, as Stephen and I were just sitting there uh, watching all of you receive the presence of Christ in Holy Communion. I find it to be a very moving experience. Uh, thankful to God for, for you, for this church, for the positions of leadership that he's given us. And we don't take it lightly. We take it very seriously and, uh, and just say thank you. Thank you for your support of what God is doing here. And not just in here, but through us to this community. It's a big deal. Huge deal. Well, this is week seven of, of our eight-week series on the book of Revelation, uh, titled, Dear Church, Everything is Going to Be Okay. And I just uh, like to keep repeating this because I know that, as I've heard from people throughout the weeks, that some of you still are a little bit timid about opening up the book of Revelation, and I get it, because there's sometimes when I'm studying and researching it and I'm reading a part I haven't read for a while, I'm like, wow, how does that make sense? Well... Revelation, we need to remember, was written to people who understood the language in which it was written. It's meant to be understood, and it was meant to be useful to them, because they needed to hear from Jesus himself because of their suffering. They were suffering because they were standing up for the faith that you and I have today, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The approach that we're using here is to take a look at the letters that were written to the seven main churches on the Roman roads and the seaports, and um, also to look at some key concepts throughout the book of Revelation. I think some of the ones I've, I've chosen specifically are because they're some of the most misunderstood, but also they are very, very relevant to the people as they heard Jesus talk about these concepts, like the Antichrist or the two witnesses, the last days, the dragon, the beast, the number 666. How many times have we... When was the last time you got the number 666 and went, oh no. Oh, those are the first three numbers of my bicycle lock. <laughs> Get a new one. Yeah. Um, we also learned that, uh, that justice, it's a just God that requires the reality of a heaven and a hell. That doesn't make God unjust. That makes him a just God. And we talked about last week the rapture um, and Armageddon, which is going to last about that long. And then today's concepts, we're talking about the new Jerusalem and the number 144,000. So first, though, we're going to look at the letter um, that Jesus wrote to the church of Philadelphia. I love the name. How many of you are from Philadelphia? What's it mean? What's Philadelphia mean? Besides a really good sandwich. That's it. Brotherly love. That's what it means, brotherly love. Well, that's why it was called that, because it was founded in 189 B.C. by a king who had a lot of love for his brother. So there was a lot of love in the city. A lot of love for what took place in the city, too, for all the different gods that they have, but very little to nil love for the one true Christian God. Yet despite all the persecution and the suffering that the Christians 
who did believe in the one true God, the creator who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to forgive them, these persecuted believers remained faithful no matter what the world threw at them. You know, they were really, truly people who knew how to live in the world but not be of it. Those are the people that he's writing this letter to today. And Jesus acknowledges and rewards their faithfulness in this letter. So I want to get to the letter and look up Revelation 3, beginning with verse 7, just a few verses here. To the angel or the messenger, the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write these words, John. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, David being the ancestor of Jesus, so he's talking about himself, Jesus. That's how the people understood it. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's where it's important to try to get into the heads of the people who are hearing this letter. This is a great example of the book of Revelation being saturated with Scripture from other parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because the people were most familiar with the writings in the Old Testament. Isaiah 22, verse 22 says this, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. That is a clear reference to the promised Messiah, the Messiah to come. And that is what Jesus, almost word for word, just repeated in here. The people need to know he's talking to them personally. He goes on to say, I know your deeds. Behold, I have placed before you an open door. I've opened a door for you that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength. Yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. These people are hurting. They're putting up with a lot. We, we, we can't even imagine. And Jesus is wanting to get their attention. It's almost like being in a kindergarten classroom where you say, eyes up here, eyes up here. Sometimes adult classes are like that too. But, you know, eyes up here. Um, trying to get them to, to pay attention that this is Jesus talking to them in a very personal way. And, and the door that he's talking about, it represents a way out of the suffering they're in. So they're like, we're never going to get out of this. It keeps getting darker and darker. Our friends, our family members are getting killed. It's like, no, there's a door, Jesus is saying. There's a door. There's a way out for you, and no one can shut it because I'm the one who opened it. This letter of all the letters that we have read written to these churches is filled with more love and grace than any of them in my opinion in verse 9 it goes on to say i will make those who are of the synagogue of satan who claim to be jews though they are not but are liars i will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that i have loved you this is this is like another shot at the jews that that jesus is taking Jews who had rejected the Messiah, the promised Messiah that had been waiting thousands of years, he just didn't come like they, like they thought, you know, in the royal purple robe and a white horse and all that, and said he was a man dressed in rags who died on a cross, and that wasn't good enough for him, so they missed him. And Jesus is telling these Gentile believers, he's telling them, oh, there's going to come a day when all of those Jews who rejected the Messiah, they're going to be bowing at your feet because you 
didn't reject them. You saw what they missed. You saw who they missed. The promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. When I was reading this, and I was reading what, what, what Mike Newman talks about in his book, it's almost like he's telling them or reminding them of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Maybe you didn't read the Bible, but you saw the play or something, you know, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, my God. Okay. Where the brothers got jealous, and they threw him into a hole in the ground, thinking he'd either die, or then, they get, then he got sold out for slavery. And then years later, they ended up bowing at his feet. Because he was the second most powerful man in all the land of Egypt. And that had to be resonating with them as he's talking about what's going to happen. Those people who have the genes, the ancestry, they are the chosen people of God because they are Jews, they are Israelites, Hebrews, all synonymous terms. But yet, you have to believe in the promise of the Messiah for your salvation. That is what matters the most. Jesus is making it very clear there that who his chosen people really are has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has to do with their faith. It has to do with their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's it. You know, Mike Newman writes it this way. He says this. The Jews' genetic ties to Abraham meant nothing because of their disobedience and refusal to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That is the reality. And I like to tell people who have Jewish friends who maybe just don't believe in Jesus, there's, just, there's a veil over their eyes. They have all the background. They, they have the Old Testament prophecies, especially if they would just read Isaiah 53, okay? And, and, and it's, it's just that veil over their eyes. And I would say, if you have any Jewish friends at all, pray, pray, pray to God for that veil to be lifted because they're this close. They're this close to having revealed to them that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes on to say in verse 10, he says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. What is that hour of trial? We don't know. It'll be a tough time. But he's saying, you know what, because of who you are, I'm going to, he says it elsewhere too, is I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep that time short for you as the elect so you don't have to experience it as harshly as others will. And he closes, goes on to say, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold on to what you have. Somebody asked me again after the last service what I really meant by that, so I'm going to try to explain it better this time. You know, when I, I talk a lot about the tube of faith and how the faith that we have is a gift from God the Holy Spirit. And if you picture the cross and Jesus earning forgiveness and eternal life. The question is, how do some receive that forgiveness and eternal life? It's called through faith, the gift of God. And that tube of faith I always picture as being from our heart to the cross. But you see, faith being of the heart is enough for salvation. But you know what the world does? It attacks the head. It attacks our, our, our minds. It gets us to, to doubt, to maybe disbelieve some of the things that we know or believed to be true in the Bible. And so knowledge is important to hold on 
to the faith that we have. Otherwise, people will come knocking at our doors and they will try to shake our faith. And that's what God is telling them no. He said this several times. He says, hold on to what you have. Not your works, but the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. That is who you have. This is what you have. Hold on to the word of God. Know that the word in here is truth. Hold on to that. And he goes on to say, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. I got to be honest with you, I studied that one. I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what that means. But when I, I started looking at, the, at uh, the city of Philadelphia, it was known for having earthquakes. And those earthquakes would take down about any statue. So they started building statues in the temples, you know, very, very well, much more sturdy. And those that would stand the test of time, you know, because the earthquakes wouldn't take them out. Those were the ones that they revered more and they honored more. And God is saying, that's who you are. You remain faithful. Nothing is going to shake your faith. Nothing is going to tear you down. That's, that's how they're hearing it. That's, that, that's what they're hearing God say to them. He goes on to say, I will write on them, on you, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Three times he mentions having new names. I want you to think about that. Relate that to your baptism. That's why we want to get the names right when we baptize. What exactly is your name? What's your full name? That is the name into which you are baptized, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a new name. It's a name that God has given you. It's a Christianized name. It makes you a follower of Jesus Christ. It was a common practice for God to make a big deal of people's names and change their names as they prove their faithfulness. Abraham wasn't always Abraham, was he? What was his name originally? Just Abram, all right? You have Jacob. Jacob didn't keep the name Jacob. His name became Israel, all right? Because names define character. They reveal the character of the person. And what God is saying, you people have hope. You have character. You've persevered. I am giving you my name to be on you. Remember who you are and whose you are. And then he closes by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me tell you the thing I think is coolest about this letter. This is the only letter of the ones we've read so far that doesn't have something in it that every other letter had. Every other letter has encouragement. They always start off with encouragement. You're doing so great. This is so, you're so wonderful. Such great character. You're persevering in the faith. faith. And then all of a sudden, it's like verse 3. It says, but I hold this against you. Did you hear that here? Wasn't here. Because he's not holding anything against them. He is encouraging them because they've been faithful. They must have just been facing horrible, horrible persecution and yet remaining strong in the faith. And that's why I believe the most dominant theme in the book of Revelation is heaven itself. And I think sometimes we forget about that. But it makes sense. Because what do suffering people need to have more than anything else when they're suffering? Hope hope for a life to come, especially if they know that their suffering is going to lead to their death, which is what these people were experiencing. So what Jesus does is give John this vision of heaven, what is called in here the New Jerusalem. So what I want to do is here, I want, I want to talk about this for a minute. 
by having you all turn to Revelation 21. You can write this down, look it up on your phone, open your Bible, whatever. Revelation 21, 10 to 17, this is like the coolest, craziest, beautiful description of heaven in all of the Word of God. It really is. I'm just going to read this to you. Listen. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see a pattern here? The number 12, the number 12 is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's the foundation of the word of God. It's the foundation called the church. All right, he goes on to say, there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. That's a reference to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's present in his church. It goes on to say, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, a cube, a perfect cube. It was as long as it was wide. It, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. And listen to this, as wide and high as it is long. As wide, as high, and as long, all right? The angel measured the wall using human measurements, and it was 140 cubits thick. Let's talk about those measurements. 12,000 stadia, that is 1,400 miles in length. That means around this city, we have a wall that is 1,200 feet long by 1,200 feet wide, 1,200 miles long, sorry, that's not it either, 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles high. I love high ceilings. <laughs> 1,400 miles. Do you think this is literal or figurative? This won't fit anywhere in the Middle East. This is bigger than Texas. This is huge. This is the picture that God is giving them. It's a symbol of perfection, of greatness. Then 144 cubits thick. How many walls are 200 feet thick? Are there walls 200 feet thick? I don't know. Even the Great Wall of China couldn't have been 200 feet thick. That's a thick wall. Is that literal or is it figurative? When I look at that, I, I, I hear that and I go, God is just making it very clear, once you're inside those walls, you are safe. <laughs> there ain't nothing getting in that's going to hurt you. Nothing. My, my point here is not to, dis, to diminish the new Jerusalem or, or the new heaven, but rather to help us do what I think God wants us to do with this picture that he gives us here. It's to say, oh my, this is incredible. This is so beyond beautiful. I can't wrap my mind around this. That's how big God is. I can't fully understand him or his beauty, but He's incredible. I remember as a kid thinking going to heaven was going to be tough if we're just going to be laying around in a cloud playing a harp. <laughs> no way, man. We're going to be checking this place out, right? I mean, there's a lot going on here. 
My second point, though, is to establish this. Once again, our need to be consistent, consistent in how we interpret this book and all the books of the Bible. This is a vision. It's apocalyptic literature. It was given to John as a symbolic vision. Numbers and symbols in this are meant to be interpreted as something else. These people receiving this letter knew how to do so. They understood this. I'm just trying to help us get into their heads a little bit as we try to get today what they got back then. Because they did. So with this beautiful description of heaven, it begs the question, who's going? Who's going? So let's talk about something else, and that's the number 144,000. Revelation chapter 7, turn to that. Verses 1 to 10. It reads, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And there could be all kinds of different interpretations about what that seal is, but I'll tell you right now, it is the waters of baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do you think I do it during communion on your kids? That's the seal. And then he goes on to say, then I heard, this is important, then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then he goes on to say, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, Ben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, and so forth. In verse 9, remember he had just said, I heard the number of 144. Then in verse 9 he says, after hearing this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. People from every nation, tribe, people in language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Some people say, well, see, there's two crowds. The one is a literal 144,000, and the other one is too large to count. I completely disagree. They are one after the other, one flowing right into the other. It is very clear he heard the number and then looked and saw it, and it was beyond anything that he could ever have imagined. Because the 144,000 was a figurative meaning all believers in Jesus Christ. And here's what the crowd looked like. Here's what y'all going to look like. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So real quickly, let's talk about the 144,000. There are different interpretations. You'll get people knocking on your door like Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll knock on your door. They'll say, well, the 144,000, it's a literal number of people who were so obedient to God while they lived on this earth uh, that they are the only ones who can rule with Christ in the end. That's what they'll say. Um, 144,000. And it's already filled up. Nobody else can break through. It's, it's already filled up. And they'll have other people say, well, um, they, they believe so much that, that the call of God on the chosen people, the, the ancestral Jews, right, that it must be an irrevocable call. So they're trying to come up with a way to say all Jews will be saved. 
The problem is the Bible doesn't say that. It says all who believe in Jesus will be saved. That, there's a big difference there, all right? But this irrevocable call, and so what people say is, that, well, the 144,000 is literal, but they're Jews who, were, who weren't raptured up, they weren't believers, and they became believers, and they became the witnesses to the rest of the world. And now they're being used to convert the world. And then we have other people like Larry Wilson, Wake Up America. And, 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 and there are people who believe that there are 144,000 people right now today who you can tell are going to be the 144,000. And, 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 and when tribulation gets bad enough, God is going to remove the sin from their lives, and they are going to be able to, to take on, be the warriors to save the world from all the tribulation by using their weapons of, 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 of spears and stones and bows and arrows and guns and machine guns and so forth and so on. And that's what they're going to do to protect the world. And I got to tell you, when I hear something like that, I think that is so narcissistic to think that, that, that before the end, you're going to be so special that you're going to have your sinfulness removed. Show me where. But you see, that's the problem. It's the problem when, when, when you pick and choose what is figurative and what is literal in this book of Revelation, especially when you try to apply it to yourself. There's a fourth interpretation of the 144,000, and it's basically this. It's a figurative number. The 12 represents the church, as I said. 10 is the number of per perfection and completion. You get 144,000 by taking 12 times 12 for 144 times 1,000, which is the perfect number of completion for God. And what this means is every single person, it's the church, every single person who has ever believed in Jesus Christ and whoever will believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are all the saints of God from the beginning of time, and they will enter the new Jerusalem. They will live in heaven with the Lord. Something beyond what human words can describe. It's a place, though, we, where we know there will be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more joblessness, no more tears. And nothing is ever going to be enter, able to enter those gates to anybody that can harm you because that door is shut. Because Jesus is the one who opens it and he's the one who shuts it. And if I were to sum up what Jesus is saying here to these people then and to us today, he's simply saying, he's saying, look, I died on that cross for you. And I rose from that grave for you because I love you. And that's how much I love you. That's what these people needed to hear. And that's what we need to hear. Because as we prepare, when we come here and assemble together, when we, as we prepare in here to face the world that is out there, we need to hold on to the truth, to the love of God in Jesus Christ, that he loves us so much. He died on that cross for you. Take it personal. He rose from that grave for you. But just as important as that, he's still here with you, even when you don't think so. Even though these people weren't sure, they were like, where are you, God? This life is too tough. Jesus is saying, I am there. 
And I am there with you every single step of the way, guarding you and loving you. And the phrase that kept coming to my mind as I was reading this section of Revelation is there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. He just does. This is what this book of Revelation is intended by God to reveal. Dear church, hold on. Hold on to what you know and believe to be true about Jesus Christ, about his forgiveness, about his resurrection and giving you that victory, and about his presence with you right now. Because when you do, and as you do, in the end, everything is going to be okay. In Jesus' name, amen.